This is a Culture Inject production. Welcome back to the Nevers Podcast and another mailbag episode. You had a lot to get off your chest and we're here to listen. So we're cracking open the mailbox once more and answering your letters. I'm Laura. And I am Chirag. And if you would like to follow us online, you can visit our website at hbothenevers.com. We are also on YouTube, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at hbothenevers and at hbothenevers.podcast without an A. The Nevers Podcast is available to download just about everywhere. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, uh, Spotify, Amazon Podcasts, YouTube, and anywhere else that you can stream podcasts. Any ideas, interview requests, comments, or questions can be sent to theneverspodcast at gmail.com. Please also rate and review our podcast. Your ratings and reviews help to get our podcast seen and heard by more people and grow our community. So, uh, yeah, here's just a few of our Apple Podcast reviews. Our first one is from Every Rose, who gives us five stars. The two main podcasters are excellent, but everyone that has contributed, including people from the audience sending in their thoughts, it's been intellectually inspiring to listen to. I am conflicted about Joss, but ultimately I love this show so much. It's dense, doesn't talk down to the audience, and this podcast just enhances it all. So thank you, Every Rose. I aim to be an enhancer. Like, I think we want this podcast to enhance. We want it, like, we want it to be the performance enhancing drug of watching television. In the spirit of the Olympics, I feel like I want to mention, like, listening to us, however, will disqualify you from the Olympics of just talking about TV shows with your friends. Because I feel like, like, at least for me, no one wants to hear a bunch of pretentious metaphor unpacking outside of this venue like i I don't think that's the easiest (laughs) water cooler discussion you know what i mean it's like hey fred let's deconstruct the symbolism of breaking bad while we are standing here hydrating it's it's like nah let's just say some cool shit like damn did you see that dragon wow (laughs) sheldon is a kid that kind of stuff that kind of stuff (laughs) the next review is from sam messier Uh, They say that I love the host's analyses of the episodes. Listening not only allows me to relive the episode and savor the juiciness of the nevers, but also gives me insight into key bits of dialogue and clever symbolism that I missed. Well done. Thank you. Uh, Thank you. Your appreciation is appreciated. (laughs) Yes, thank you very much. Um, Our next one is from Jean Dragon, who also gives five stars. I enjoy listening to your takes on the episodes and I always feel like I learned something from Chirag's deep dives. I'm writing because I, ju- I was just so impressed with the gentleness that you both treated Alice's points in her letter. You two shine in the way uh, that you handle criticism and your responses were uh, what I wish more discussions were like. So thank you, Dream Dragon, and thank you to all who have left us reviews, both good and bad. Uh, you know, they help to tell us what we're doing right and what we can improve on. So keep them coming. Uh, We're going to move straight into our discussion of all your letters. So we'll work through them one by one and we'll discuss each one a little bit. Um, Yeah, so let's open the Nevers mailbox and see what awaits. Let's do it. 
Our first one is from Pam Pittman. Uh, this is about, you know, where do the turns go when the characters die? So, hello, I'm new to Joss Whedon Universe. I have actually never, yeah, I've never actually watched any of his shows except Buffy way back in the day. So firstly, I've been incredibly impressed with this podcast. You deliver some really great insights, which keep me diving deeper into the show. Thank you for all your hard work. So thank you, Pam. So there's a couple of things I wanted to get your opinions on. So firstly, I haven't re-watched the show yet, but as I was watching it week uh, to week, I started wondering what happens to the blue orbs or their turns after characters who are touched die. Do the blue orbs just die with them or could they float out back into the universe and enter someone else? Could they possibly return to the Galanthi? I know we haven't seen them again after a touched character dies, but I feel it could be possible. Is this perhaps why the Galanthi seems shriveled up, seemingly powerless or sleeping? Because it lent its power to the humans so they could carry out its mission. Just a lingering question I've had as I watched it. What do you think, Chirag? Well, the the spores are absorbed, right? Like when like when you spray perfume on yourself, when you die, those pleasant olfactory particles they won't outlive your rot. They're it's not like they have a half life that that exists beyond you. But I think as far as the, the, your idea about the Galanthi, I I think yeah, you know, like maybe the Galanthi is spent, so. The chrysalis is it needing to recharge. But I I like to think that there's a synchronicity to the to the outer change and transformation that the Galanthi has brought to Victorian society and the inner change and transformation that the Galanthi is uh, going through itself. Uh, in its little chrysalis cocoon, um, that I, I I like to think that our society is a caterpillar in, in the midst of its transformation into a butterfly too, but we're just going through some cocoon growing pains, or maybe not, and we already reached our butterfly form in the '60s or something, and now we're ready to die, mm-hmm. and that's okay too, because it, death is just another kind of transformation. I don't know. What do you think? Uh, I was going to say something very similar that I don't think the the spores go anywhere else after they've like kind of been lent to one person. I think they kind of use it up um, because I always think when it goes into a particular person, it becomes something very particular to them. Like it feeds off of their life energy and that's right. what their emotions and feelings are. Yeah. So I don't think it can then go to another person. Um, but I do, I was going to say a very similar thing that I do think it makes sense that the Galanthi is kind of exhausted now if it's given all of its kind of life force out. Because that's kind of the sacrifice it's made, I feel. It's given its life force out to try and save the human race or the world or whatever. Mm. And now it's, yeah, kind of in a sleeping coma-like state yeah underground you know like i i I understand that too and and you know like you were saying it with the spores it is a newtonian law that matter can be neither created nor destroyed so whatever those particles are composed of i would imagine that they are not destroyed upon the death of whoever they're inhabiting so as personalized as they are maybe the spores do live on you know maybe they drift out of the dead bodies of the people and uh continue to the next person good question 
So they continue with their question by saying, Another thought. Do you think Lavinia could be touched? I understand she's in a wheelchair, but perhaps she's hiding her turn from everyone and trying to discover as much as she can about it. Sometimes in our world, the people who oppress certain groups are secretly hiding what they actually have in common with them, if that makes sense. Uh, I noticed Dr. Haig touched her leg when they were covering their eyes as the Galanthi orb was flashing its lights. This made me question if Dr. Haig knows of her turn, if she has one, and is advising her to hide it, or if he's just manipulating her. I kind of think that if she had a turn, he would want to experiment on her, like his experiment on all the other people. Right. Um, yeah, I don't know if it's kind of... So if she is hiding one, I feel like she'd be hiding it from him just as much as she is everyone else. I mean, if you can trust everything that we saw in the opera scene, she wasn't affected by the song. Right, yeah. Um, so I feel like that's like, if you wanted a definitive answer, if you can trust the TV editing and what it's showing us, um, yeah, it didn't show us her being affected. Yeah, I do think that you're right, though, in the fact uh, about the whole thing about people who oppress certain groups that are secretly... Uh, part of those groups I think like it is a tendency for example for some men who are gay to compensate for their self-hatred by being publicly very anti-gay but I Mm. don't think Lavinia falls into that archetype because she's publicly very pro-touched to compensate for being privately terrible to them uh, so that's a completely different archetype. That's like a politician who says, I'm with you, I'm your ally, I'm your friend. And then they go behind closed doors and they pass laws that, that poison your food or make love illegal based on biology. So that's that's mm-hmm. a different thing, I feel like. Uh, lastly, do you think it could be possible that Dr. Haig is from another time outside of the Victorian era and Zephyr's time? I notice his methods are somewhat rudimentary, I'm not sure a doctor from our time or our future would drill into a person's skull in that manner. Perhaps he's from the 20th century. Uh, that could make things more complicated, or obviously the character is uh, deranged. Yeah, like, I don't think we've really thought about this because we've kind of... Well, you, you're you on the you think he's from the future. Definitely, yeah. But if time travel is a thing, is there anything stopping the possibility of him being in the future, but that he's actually from the past and then he's gone and lived in the future and fought this war and now he's come back. Whoa. Uh, I don't know. You <laughs> scrambled my mind. <laughs> but, uh, I mean, that is really interesting because for him coming from the future, lobotomies would be, like, very passe, you know? Like, that mm. would be very... That's so 19... Uh, sorry, no, no, that's so like 1896. That's so... Uh, that, that it would be out of fashion for someone from the future. Um, but it could just be a situation where he's like, uh, when in Rome, you know, might as well try out lobotomizing. Could be fun. He's like in his experimental phase. He's just, uh, just trying anything and being open-minded. 
That like literally open mind, like as in literally <laughs> open minded. He's physically opening people's minds, but I, <laughs> it could be just like that kind of thing. I don't know. Because even if you're a doctor from the future, if you're sent back to a past where you don't have the technology, and you're not invention level smart, where you can create things to do his medical mastermind, whatever he's doing, then he's he's kind of stuck using. Using old, old practices, that right? That's true. Like as much as I use my my iPhone, uh, ten or whatever, I am kind of like if I went if I was now rewinded back three hundred years or four hundred years, I would be a dumb like caveman, even though I have the experience of using my iPhone. So that is true in the sense that we just kind of rely on smart people to develop technology that we don't understand uh under the hood and we wouldn't be able to replicate you you need a penance to create all that for you true but also i think he's just (laughs) like you know when in rome probably i think he's when in roaming the lobotomy He's, he's enjoying he's enjoying he's almost like having fun at a convention cosplaying he's like you know i'm here let's let's live it let's like not pretend that i'm not from here let's just go all in like is it a uh, let's do all of it let's do the bloodletting let's let's do the (laughs) pulling teeth let's kind of like you know experience the full victorian the the full victorian experience essentially yeah Yeah. so pam goes on to say keep up the good work so uh yeah thank you pam for your for writing in thank you okay so the next email is from bradley mines um the subject line something that's been a little baffling So uh, Bradley goes, yes, yes, me again. And then he continues. So this whole malady gang thing. First, the colonel, he seems to be able to control the thoughts of others, yet not malady. And I think he's referring to Dr. Haig. Sure, on the one hand, we can say that malady had her mind messed with by Dr. Haig, presumably. Yet she was keen and aware enough to have that ploy from Effie Boyle to to the hanging all thought out down to the last detail. So does that mean that there's a little Galanthi in Malady that can't be manipulated by others' turns? So the colonel is the is the um the other gang member, the one that can influence people. Oh yeah, was I misinterpreting so that? Okay. Yeah, so he's, um, my first thought is, well, I don't see why he would want to control Malady's thoughts because, like, you know, his thing only lasts for a certain amount of time and it would wear off and she'd know and, you know, she'd probably kill him. Um, You know, I feel like he's the same as the lady. They're happy to be following um, whatever vision Malady has. I don't don't see any purpose for him to try and control Malady um, in the the story or in his character. Yeah. yeah, I don't. I mean, it could be that she's not affected by other people's turns, but I think, um, yeah, I just don't think we've seen a reason for him to try and control Malady. You know, I didn't. I didn't realize that he was talking about the Colonel, which was the guy who was kind of assisting Malady. Um, you know, now that I think of it, that could just be a testament to Malady, given the fact that even though his power is to control people's minds that she has this control over him. Mm. And 
because of whatever intelligence or magnetism or leadership she has that we haven't really seen that side of her yet that she was able to kind of galvanize this guy who will run through a brick wall for her who will you know electrocute a bunch of people at at her fake hanging for her that's an interesting yeah. thing to see that these two the, she has people who are loyal to her for a reason it's it's not just because you know she's not she, there's there's nothing more on the on the surface but someone who speaks in riddles and is crazy yeah i think they did good with the colonel's ability because um giving someone just like full on mind control is too much like they'd be near and unbeatable so having this power where it's kind of like he just says you know um and then it lasts for a fight seems to last for a finite amount of time and it can wear off so but yeah i think i'm with you like malady has such a I don't know, she has a vision, she knows what she wants to do, and these henchmen follow her with everything they have. So to see someone who can literally control minds be controlled, essentially, by someone else, yeah, kind of shows you how powerful they are. So Bradley goes on to say, and is there more to the plot with Malady? So is Fireball Annie there as a spy for Malady? In episode two, Annie says to Malady, I can work with crazy, I can't work with stupid. However, Annie turned very quickly after the Malady and Amalia confrontation in episode 2. Then in 3, again, saying, I can't work with crazy. Uh, Sorry, I can work with crazy, I can't work with stupid. To Amalia. But we know that Malady isn't stupid. Yes, Mary dying brought her to the orphanage. There was a connection between Malady and Mary. Well, Malady felt. So could Malady have planted Annie there to get more information on the touched, Amalia and their mission? There's some tension with Annie and Amalia after the funeral and Annie chose to go after the Galanthi and uh, not to save Malady, possibly already knowing she wasn't going to hang so she could find out that info. Malady said to Annie in two, as she was going to get penance, we'll do a proper job after this. Annie says that she works alone but repeatedly calling uh, Malady boss and follows her orders. If this is a one and done, it would be so disappointing and so much to delve into. So this is basically questioning, do uh, do you think that Annie is like a double agent? I don't think so. What do you think? Because I feel like when she was saying that I can work with crazy, but I can't work with stupid, I think that was the first indication of their eventual rift. And there's no evidence that I can see that would disqualify that piece of dialogue because at one point based on that piece of dialogue at one point Annie was working for Malady because Malady is not stupid like like Annie said I can work with crazy but I can't work with stupid and the fact that she yeah. was working with Malady means Malady is not stupid you know so at one point but you know when Malady started to do some uh uh i guess questionable things that's when that rift started to happen because their relationship was very mercenary like there wasn't the loyalty that the colonel or the toe cut off lady had with her so yeah yeah. i i I think that's the main thing with annie is that 
in my eyes, you know, she's a gun for hire. She's not um, overly bothered by what the the end goal of the person who's paying her is um, until she starts seeing that they're acting in a stupid way not to, you know, probably <laughs> not to make money or get paid. And if Annie's not going to get paid and she's putting her life on the, like, on the line for no good reason, then she'll walk away, which is what happens, essentially. Like, she reaches a point where she's like, nah, I can't be, I can't be working here anymore, and just leaves. Which is why I think that's such, that's such a beautiful thing about the character of Annie, is that she mm. is a gun for hire, she doesn't care, she's very self-involved, very much just, you know, in the orbit of her own self-interests, just like, like, the character of Jane from Firefly, for example. That's what I was going to say, yeah. She is our Jane, right. but uh, it makes a pretty quick crossover to the, you know, here's, here's the morals and here's where she really stands and her, like, she finds her own thoughts on things because I feel like she's come from a world where she's had to live on the streets and, you know, do all this work and everything, but now she's found a kind of, it's almost like she's found a purpose. Exactly. And That's what I was going to say. She's... Yeah. yeah, like Mary's song is the first indication or instance that we've seen in which uh, she's decided to align herself with with a group of people not based on this mercenary thing of her own self-interests, but based on a, a higher ideal, like something to fight for, something larger than just herself, something to yeah. make the world a better place. And I think that's very that's a very important development, and that's a big reason why that episode where Mary dies, she gets assassinated after her song. Annie is the reason that episode works, because she starts off that episode using her powers to destroy for her own self interest, and she caps that episode episode off with her using her powers to protect and to guide people towards community. And that yeah. kind of arc is what really adds this import and this weight to not just the show, not, not just like Mary's song, but to the show in general. Like without her character, that would have been a, a bit of a weakness, I feel like. Yeah, so I don't think she she knew anything because I think if she had known what Malady's like end goal was, she would have definitely told them, and they would have, you know, because penance wasted. They essentially kind of wasted all that time and resources going um, and trying to stop this hanging. I mean, I guess they did save people, didn't they? They saved some of the audience members watching. Otherwise, they would have all got electrocuted. Um, but um, other than that, they didn't actually achieve the goal, which was to save Malady. And, and at the same point, Annie chose to go with the other team because she doesn't really care about Malady. And if she dies, she's got a new purpose now. Yeah, and then as far as Malady, I've, I do, like, her brain did get messed with by Dr. Haig. But I think, like, she she did somehow get out of that. I, I Like, I'm with you, bro. I love a flashback episode of Malady's escape. I think it would be a good opportunity to see her owning her wits and intelligence if she plans that great escape herself. Like uh, she she plans this great escape with with like a cat like a Suicide Squad cast of weird characters who are all playing these Mission Impossible roles to make it happen. 
Uh, I think that would be a really cool thing. Intercut interstitially with something that would be really meaningful that I think is going to come up later on, which is Malady being the Moses for all the touched who are still trapped by Dr. Haig and that underground uh, work mine uh, and who also got their brains messed with. I think Malady coming in as a kind of uh, savior anointed by God and just, you know, guiding them to freedom and empowerment would be a really interesting direction to take her. But um, thank you very much for writing in, Bradley. Yeah, thank you, Bradley. So the next three letters are in response to our response to Alice's email about all uh, the controversy stuff. Um, so we're going to read them in one go, I guess, and then respond to each one afterwards. Uh, so again, like, uh, so it's, so some of these have been edited for length. And first up is Amanda's email. So Amanda starts off with, she, she says, first off, I would just like to say, I think you all handled that email from Alice quite well. You spoke compassionately and diplomatically, so thank you for handling that long email very well. Amanda goes on to say, I have compassion about this person's neurodivergence. We all have our struggles, plus my sister has autism, which often makes it difficult for her to listen to other people's sides or take in new information that will make her think differently. However, when you put things out online for people to read, regardless of being neuroatypical, you have to expect people to have critiques of what you say. Amanda continues, uh, I am not on some bandwagon high horse. I don't think Whedon is the most evil person ever, nor do I think he's the worst abuser in Hollywood. But what he allegedly did was undoubtedly abuse. To chalk the bizarre, toxic work environment he created as him not being a ray of sunshine 24-7 is quite diminishing. TV shows work around pregnancy all the time. There is no evidence of charisma hiding her pregnancy, nor is that possible. Based off timelines given, she told them before production of the season began, the season could have easily gone with the ideas Greenwald had before he left. However, Stephen Denight who joined the writing staff during Angel's fourth season, said in an interview at the time that someone on staff several episodes in had proposed a villain that didn't have a name yet. Uh, the fact that this person tries to minimize all this with, oh, he's just flawed, is actually very offensive. If all this was done to you, Alice, would you be so understanding? I really doubt it. When it comes down to it, she just likes his stories and wants to feel um, wants to not feel shamed for it. So in the end, she's degrading other people's experiences all over the fact that she likes his fiction. Amanda continues, I think this is a huge problem for fandom, as you two pointed out, where they take the art so personally you would think they wrote it. You can still enjoy work you watched before knowing these things. It doesn't have to be a personal offense to you that people are calling out abusive creators. Maybe people should focus less on writer and creator names and just try to evaluate things in a more unbiased way because degrading a work just because he created it 
is a short-sighted and foolish. It's detrimental to everyone else who works on the projects, but it's also foolish to endlessly praise a work just because he wrote it, as though he never wrote a bad idea down before. Again, I appreciate how you, pod, uh, you, the podcasters, dealt with this email and I understand not wanting to talk about it more. This podcast is about the nevers and not about dissecting scandals. Um, you shouldn't have to talk about it more, but if you were to read this at any point on the podcast, I just would want people to consider the things I have said as valid. Amanda continues, Again, I apologize for how long this is, but I felt I needed to get this off my chest. I look forward to your Firefly episodes and hearing more from you as the second half of the Nevers first season finally comes. Thank you for your patience with these emails, Vanessa. Thank you very much, Vanessa. So moving on to our next letter. So this letter is from Thomas Kelly. I tend to get terribly verbose, so I'll try and make this very brief. I have to say how much I appreciated how you reiterated the point that only those people who were there know exactly what happened. That's so important in this age of cancel culture and especially Twitter. It doesn't exonerate anyone, nor does it incriminate. I believe there's been a paradigm shift uh, which puts generations at odds sometimes. Yet there has been some occasional crossover by a portion of older individuals uh, who've adjusted. Growing up, the rule was, don't upset the boss. Now it's become, don't upset the employee. And I'm not saying one is preferred over the other, but one appears more natural, and certainly the modus operandi, uh, historically speaking. They continue. Personally, I don't like what I perceive as no longer learning to deal with situations that can simply happen in life, and often do. To be clear, I'm not talking about accepting criminal behavior, nor am I talking about accepting any of these negative behaviors when I say these things. I'm talking about accepting the reality they happen, as they happen. And we, we each must learn how best to deal with them personally, rather than expect them never to happen at all. Instead, it appears we're not only attempting to alter what real life is so that people don't get upset, but deny reality. Uh, just trying to put nuance on this point is really difficult in text. That last point is primarily aimed at how best to address this, particularly if somebody does not want to change how people generally handle these situations. What I was trying to say, and perhaps failed at, is how we must at least acknowledge the reality for most of human history. For example, a boss yelled at an employee, and while everyone pretty much gets this, Yet, when it happens, it is occasionally addressed as though it happened in a world that's never seen such a thing before. Thomas continues, uh, Granted, the ultimate goal is an admirable one, but life can be hard. Instead of living as though everyone must walk around on eggshells so we don't upset anyone, I would hope people continue to learn how to handle a tough situation, or a mean word, and how to teach others to handle it. Again, while it's an admirable goal, we can't keep people from doing or saying bad things. Rather than expect everyone to change, we should try to be better equipped to handle it. We can be there to support those who need it, help them learn to get through it, instead of believing we can stop it from ever happening. After all, the only thing we truly have real control over is our response. 
I told you I was horribly verbose. My apologies. And the last letter on this topic is from Gnomes Rocks. So they say, I think there's an important thing to note that though Stephen DeKnight says people were aware of Charisma's pregnancy before production started, the writer's room starts well before production. Joss is not one of those showrunners that just wings it as the show goes on. So it can be both so it can both be true that they were able to pivot before the season started and that her late admission and using only her agent to communicate ruined weeks of planning. Other writers and producers have also mentioned Charisma's lack of professionalism, as well as Joss playing favorites. That doesn't excuse his behavior, because even if she was being unprofessional, you do not ask a pregnant woman if she's going to keep it. Continuing, they say, That being said, I do find the discourse on Joss rather silly at times with this uh, revisionist perspective due to his controversies. People now suddenly label Xander as a cipher for Joss, as an abusive man-child misogynist, or brown coats are white supremacists because of the Confederate connection, or how the Nevers' critical reviews have generally bombed because the show is automatically problematic just because of the creator. So... Obviously, thank you for people writing in about this. Well, I mean, just going off the immediately last thing that was said, I guess I first wanted to respond to Gnome Rocks and say that um, I do agree with them that there is a revisionist history thing that happens where when someone gets cancelled or just relentlessly crapped on, Everything they've ever done artistically suddenly becomes bad and has always been mm. bad. And then there's people coming out of the woodwork like, I always hated fill in the blank. Uh, looks like I was right. I think that's useless and reductive. I don't think that's yeah. the point. Uh, when we hold people accountable, it has nothing to do with the creative quality of their content. Like uh, like, uh, Ro like Roman Polanski, for example, he needs to face his crime and accountability, but I don't think any reasonable person can really say Chinatown is a bad movie. Then again, like the, the cultural value of a thing is like the stock market in the sense that it's determined by the people either buying or selling that if they if the people fucking hate you then of course your company is going to tank of course they're going mm. to sell even if you make the cutest stuffed animal because at that point if the people hate you your teddy bear becomes a symbol of the patriarchy you know what i mean yeah but at the same time there are businesses that um are run by people that you know even right now there's particular people that people are talking about um very big in the news, that they hate the heads of these companies, yet they will still, because the way the world works and we need these companies and it's one of the easiest way to get things you need or whatever, you use those companies regardless of you hating the person who's on top making all the money. Well, yeah, that's true. I mean, like, financially, the world is pretty amoral. Like, well, we're going to keep buying things from Amazon no matter how many babies Jeff Bezos punts across the... the <laughs> 
the skyline it's not going to matter because it's convenient and it's the easiest way to order uh your resist whatever you need to order but yeah and it's, it's just like as a metaphor i mean but yeah but i i'm just thinking like most people don't think about who's on top and who's created the thing like a lot of people a lot of people go to the cinema they don't know who directed the movie they don't know who wrote it they don't know who produced it they're just going and watching the film and if it's good it's good if it's bad it's bad so should knowing that the person who created it did whatever horrible things if you thought it was a good movie should it affect the fact like i do get like watching it again if you know it can kind of just make you feel a bit icky because you know the person made it but like what you said it's not going to instantaneously just make it a bad film if you once thought it was a good film you're right from the perspective of the casual viewer but if you think about it from the like the gatekeepers the like the media the people who kind of shape perception of how good or bad something is i guess you can call like the, the critics those mm. people are going to be aware of the creator and they're going to be aware yeah. of the politics and you know the they're going to be informed by their memories of the past and their awareness of the kind of social uh relationships between you know the various people involved i guess I don't know if that makes sense, but the, the fact that those people are aware, it has a trickle-down effect where I feel like culturally everyone becomes aware. Like the Nevers, for example, and I think Gnomes Rocks mentions this, the Nevers got kind of like very mediocre reviews by critics. Mm. And just in the media, it didn't get very much attention. And, you know, just like... Uh, I think that the Emmy nominations just came out and the only nomination this show got was special effects. I think yeah. that, and again, I'm just kind of speculating here, but I think if Joss Whedon was not involved or if he was involved, but he just kind of ghost uh, writ this show and didn't have his name attached, this would have been a phenomenon, I feel like. And I like at the very yeah. least, the costume designers should have got a nomination. Like they did yeah. a phenomenal job. And there's so much yeah, about I this show that that is phenomenal and Emmy worthy. And I would argue better than The Mandalorian at the very least. Uh, not that The Mandalorian is a bad show, but I just think that this show is relatively more deeply thought than that one um yep like this season of the nevers was definitely stronger than the last season of the mandalorian on a lot of fronts the problem is that reviewers and critics aren't just critiquing a movie what they're essentially doing is advertising it if they give a movie a good review they're essentially advertising it and telling you to go watch it and they're being like tiptoey because they don't want to advertise a film or a tv show if there's all this controversy around it i suppose um we'll see how the next one does with a different showrunner if suddenly everyone just jumps on board yeah we'll see about that uh, is, is there anything more that you wanted to say about the charisma carpenter thing i don't know i don't know is essentially like a hundred percent how 
contractual obligations and things work like is it in a contract as an actor like that if you find out you're pregnant or something else like that you have to inform them like immediately or do you know what I mean like I don't know what the ins and outs of of their contracts were and at the same time were they contractually obliged to keep her on board because if they were going to have such a hatred to someone would it not have been easier to just write them out of the show completely like why would you why would you make efforts to rewrite a show to keep them in if contractually you could have just got rid of them instead? Right. Do you know what I mean? Like it. What were their contracts and what was everything written up? At, you know, we don't know, or I don't know anyway. Because um, yeah, it's that whole thing of like I don't know why you would keep someone around if you're then going to make their life a misery or vice versa. I feel like, and I'm going to go on for a minute here. I think instead of getting back into the weeds of that situation and all that stuff, for me at least, it might be productive to put a little distance between between this. And I want to relate this, and specifically as a response to Gnome's Rocks, I want to relate this situation to stories that I've heard uh, that I that came from that movie that Alejandro Inaritu made you know, the one where Leo DiCaprio gets jumped by a bear. You know which one I'm talking about? It's called The Revenant. So from what I've heard, that movie was hell behind the scenes. So it became notorious for many crew members just quitting because they couldn't take it anymore. And, you know, like it was bitter cold where they were filming uh, the environments were difficult and unsafe and the hours were very long. People were freezing. They were screamed at. Their jobs were threatened. They were overworked to the bone. Uh, they would barely get any sleep, fatigued, sick, angry. Leo DiCaprio was sleeping in a dead animal carcass for some reason. Uh, just like a nightmare production, right? And... After all of this, and the movie comes out, and it's great, and this director won his Golden Globes or whatever, the argument he made to justify everything that happened was this. He said, and this is a quote, he said, pain is temporary, but a film is forever. That's where I want to call bullshit. And... And follow me here, humor me. When he says pain is temporary, film is forever. Nothing is forever. Like the very nature of material existence is impermanence. Everything ends. Everything eventually goes away. Like we we write our names in the sand for the next wave to wash it all away. It, like it's it's that Shelley poem that that I guess Mary Shelley's husband, he wrote that poem. Uh I am Ozymandias, king of kings, utterly forgotten. At like great civilizations fall, Rome fell, everyone dies, I am going to die. Everyone who knows and remembers me is going to die. Eventually this planet we're on will just be dust drifting through space. That's a certainty. Like, that's a guarantee. Uh, there's a lifespan that we have. Uh, just factually, our sun is going to run out of hydrogen 
and it's going to supernova in about 5 billion years. So everything that we work so hard to maintain, all these Taj Mahals and all these great pyramids and Starbucks uh, and Apple iPhones, and they're <laughs> all going to end up dust. Like all of those years of research and development and billions of dollars that went into developing the newest iPhone, all of that is for naught. It's just going to end up dust. And everything is temporary. I, I want to, I really want to stress that. There's no ex, I, the point of me saying this is there's no existential basis for saying something like a film is forever because no, it's not. And the reason I'm laboring on that point is to say that I don't think there's really any excuse for cruelty as a means to an end. Yeah. Like, no matter how important you think you are or how important you think your work is, both you and your work are temporary. We're all temporary. So... Why spend the time we have here generating friction and conflict with other people and just being in disharmony and causing damage all in the name of doing something important that's just going to be washed away? And I think everything we think is important on a cosmic scale is absolutely meaningless. And I'm not saying that in a nihilistic way. I'm saying it in the way that isn't it fantastic that if there is no meaning to life, then we have nothing to fulfill and we can just live? Isn't that, isn't that fantastic? I mean, mm-hmm. like, and anyways, like uh, all of that just to kind of say that my feeling is that no, no ambition or job or television show is important enough to justify damaging the livelihood of people or animals or the environment. I That's just my feeling. And, you know, like, just as I'm kind of getting off on this tangent a little bit and being a little kind of, you know, out there, I want to say, and this is just my feeling, and I don't know this to be true or not, but my feeling is that Underneath this world of change and impermanence that we're in, where everything is born and dies and material is finite, I think, I like to think at least, that beneath that world, there is an infinite, changeless reality. And I feel like that is God. Like, only that can be forever. So to say something like film is forever feels to me like nothing more than an ego trip. You know, and, you know, like, uh, granted, some people's egos are very impressive. Some people build these egoic structures like cathedrals and Eiffel Towers, like, so mag- so magnificent. Everyone else flocks to them like tourists and worships at the altar of their newest rap album. I'm talking about Kanye West. But none of that can last. It's a corniest adage, but this too shall pass applies to everything, the bad things and the good things. So I just wanted to say that. And then responding to Amanda, I do think that everything you're saying is 100% valid. 
there is a problem with fandom, as you mentioned. There definitely is a problem with fandom in general that I would extend also to patriotism, nationalism, politics, Mm. you know, like religious extremism, all forms of identification. Like people identify themselves so strongly with things like Star Wars that who they are cannot exist without those Star Wars pillars holding up their persona. And then Ryan Johnson comes along and tries to do something unique and interesting. And suddenly, like, three billion people's pillars are collapsing. (laughs) And they're having identity crises and they're feeling attacked and angry. I don't know. I feel like if we could all agree to just appreciate things without entangling and intertwining our identities with them, I feel like the culture wars would just simmer down a little bit. Do you know what I mean? Do you, do you have thoughts on that thing of, and I, most recently this happened with the newest He-Man show that Kevin Smith did on Netflix where everybody is just like shitting on him for focusing on a female lead. And like I get the the nostalgia betrayal of that, but why are we so nostalgic? Why are our identities so threatened by changes and evolutions and you know i don't know do you have any thoughts on that before i go on yeah so i i mean in terms of like i want to bring up a point after this to thomas kelly's letter but like i have major issues and could talk for hours about like patriotism and i don't know tradition and how people and i guess most recently i've been really angry i live in england and like the football like how crazy people can get because they happen to be born in England and they're following the England football and they have no real affiliation with this football team whatsoever, yet their life and their emotional stability is like dependent on it and they, you know, can trash entire parts of cities because they won or lost and I just kind of think, you know, and like what you're saying, like it's almost like if your happiness depends on the direction of Star Wars or a particular TV show or a football team, I feel like there's a, a, a you know, it just shouldn't happen. I, I've, I get, it upsets me. <laughs> yeah, there's a spiritual kind of decay or uh, I guess mis, uh, misappropriation going on. As far as fandom and uh, exactly what you're saying, and I don't really know about football and or soccer as we call it in the united states but is it true that i guess england did they lose to germany is that what happened uh i think it was germany possibly but yeah they made it to the final for the first time ever and this is like the euros so it's not even like the world cup and i don't think before now anyone has ever concentrated on the euros but i think the government was really kind of like pushing it and it was everywhere because obviously the pandemic and this was like the first big thing for people to kind of get behind a support so I feel like it was a huge ruse (laughs) they're trying to like you know get everybody into this to forget about the state of the world right now and on top of that yeah just I don't know people going absolutely crazy in their thousands in the middle of London and whether and you know whether they won or lost this the 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 destruction that was caused and the way people were acting you know but it's like oh it's football it's okay no one gets arrested no one faces any consequences 
because, oh, it's football. And I think in the same way, it's that it's that thing of like, oh, well, it's tradition. This is how we've always done it, so it's okay. And it's like, no, that's not that's not a valid point. And that brings me to Thomas Kelly's letter in that I feel like he's trying to get across that... <sighs> I feel like his angle is that bad stuff happens and instead of pointing out the bad stuff and making it not happen, we should help people deal with it more. And I'm the complete opposite because I would rather address the people doing the bad things and stop the bad things from happening than have people just deal with it. Like, and I know, and this is the whole, I think the cross thing with generations is that, um, you know, now we have this whole thing of like, oh, we were a snowflake. So if you point out someone who's being sexist or being racist or whatever, no matter how small or big it is, I think that you should, it's, you know, you should point it out because it's wrong. And then you're labeled as a snowflake. And, but I feel like you could equally label the people calling you out for being a snowflake a snowflake because it's like, but you're the one making the issue. It's kind of like, it's this never-ending cycle of, of of people who think that they're right, and but at the base of it, you know, can't everyone just be nice? Like, and I think it's especially when, like, when it's when it's an issue that doesn't concern you, you know, if someone is gay or whatever, and they're living their life, and it doesn't I- impact your life at all, yet you still make a point to go out of your way to say things about them, even in like. You're not attacking them, but it's like, oh, they're blah, blah, blah. Right. You know, it, it's just kind of like, why? You're you're taking time out of your life to be mean and then asking the other people to just get on with it and deal with it, like, because, you know, this is just the way the world is. When it's like, no, because everyone should be making an active choice to not make the, you know, it's this tradition thing. This is just how it is, but it doesn't have to be. I want to make the active choice to try and make the world a better place and just be nice to everybody. <laughs> Yeah, I I see what you're saying, and I do think that you're right, and I also think that Thomas is right, and I think your perspective and his perspective can kind of coexist in the way that your personal serenity and your personal kind of bliss can endure like thomas was saying in the way that your only personal individual power is in your choice in how you react to something right so even if you're in a a situation or circumstance in which you're being insulted or belittled or just you know ridiculed or oppressed or whatever it is on a personal level I get what Thomas is saying, and I think that is the right approach, which is to just accept what is happening and deal with it in a way, in whatever way you can, and just accept it and say thank you and 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 kind of preserve your own serenity, your own bliss, your own being okay with yourself, regardless of however loudly your boss screams at you. But to kind of marry it with what you're saying. I do think that along with protecting yourself, it's important to also speak out systemically when there are people in power who are doing things that are oppressive or wrong or negative. Both things can coexist. 
you can protect your own happiness and your own serenity and your own kind of evenness while also speaking out against and making arguments against and, you know, being a lawyer in the court of law and fighting against the abuses of people who are, you know, mistreating their employees or uh, being anti-gay or, you know, whatever, whatever kind of abuse is occurring. It is important to fight and to speak out and to seek systemic change and not allow people to get away with uh, abuses of their power. Both things can coexist, I feel like. I, I, I do feel like sometimes we think that anger and revenge and this thing that's in us where we want to dominate and we want to destroy and we want to and we have this righteousness within us and we want to really show people that they're wrong and we're right i think we're kind of attached to that and we don't necessarily need to be like as much as again like if somebody is against racism or any kind of abuse or oppression who is angry i'm not going to say don't do don't don't fight fight by all means like your anger helps you uh swing that sword with more force than you would if you didn't have that anger on the battlefield of justice like a social justice warrior whatever but i do think that if we can still fight without that that thing of oh we got to get revenge we got to you know we got to kill the other side if we can fight with compassion and understanding fight for what is right while also you know being kind of secure within ourselves and not falling to the uh, the drama of psychology. I think that is the ultimate approach. And like, I'm just thinking of this right now, but there's this great story of, you know, um, if I can recall it, there is there was a samurai whose master was killed, right? And the samurai um, went out to uh, find the killer of his master and take care of that and when the samurai found the guy he was going to kill him but that guy spat in his face and the master and the, and the samurai instead of killing the guy put down his sword because he was feeling angry in that moment and to kill that guy out of anger would have been the wrong intention. It would have been the wrong motivation. Hmm. So it's not that uh, it's not that holding the person accountable was the wrong thing to do. It's that doing it in a way where your motivation is anger or revenge, that is the wrong way to do it. Or maybe not the wrong way to do it, but not the ideal way to do it. Anyways, that, that, that's just my, my little tangent there. Yeah, no, I think that tangent is is good though because it basically sums up this whole. I think the 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 place we're living at at the minute in the world is that even if you try to, if you're not angry and you tell someone, oh, by the way, you know what you just said is sexist, 
instead of taking it on board and having a conversation with you, they instantly go, oh, you're being a snowflake or blah, blah, blah. And and then we end up with these like very harsh two sides that just can't talk to each other or kind of take on each other's views or get to the bottom of anything. I feel like that's where, especially like on social media, there's like just this really harsh divide. Exactly. And you mentioned the two sides of it all. And I think that's a big illusion because there is no such thing as two sides. We are all on the same team and there's no separation or distance between us. So when we erect those borders and those walls and those barriers and whatever it is, that is a disconnect that is unhealthy. We're all on the same team. And when someone else who is part of you is having ideas or thoughts or views or political beliefs or whatever that are destructive or are negative or are causing harm the the two sides ism of it i don't think is helpful i think bringing them in and loving them and and you know feeling empathy and compassion and being in their shoes while also fighting for what is right is the only way that we can all be together because if we attack people that inherently makes them separate from us and when we do that we create factions and uh you know political parties and beefs and all this kind of stuff that we don't need to be doing that's just mm. that's just my feeling on it. Yeah, and I did want to mention one more thing that you said, of course, like as foot football is a distraction for the state of the world. I think that's that's mm. kind of true. You really hit the nail on the head with that one in the sense that we are focusing in on this grand spectacle while there's a swirl of plastic kind of mm. just in the ocean poisoning everything and and you know, it's as much as we are attached to these things. And this is also on the idea of fandom. I wanted to mention this thing that David Foster Wallace said, the novelist. He said, you can't not worship. You're always worshiping something. And you better pay attention to what you're worshiping. Because if you worship the wrong thing, it can eat you up. And I think like, for me personally, my goal in my life is to find some kind of experiential connection to the infinite. And this is going back to the kind of the impermanence of this material world we live in. I do think and... I again like this is not something that I know to be true this is something that I, that I want to explore in my own life and it's something that Carl Jung calls the numinous that which is larger than me and I am a part of the infinite uh and I think that's a relationship that we've kind of lost in our grasping towards pop culture and politics and uh identity and all that kind of stuff and uh and there's, there's this great Polynesian expression that Lisa Marchian talks about, and so does Joseph Campbell. It is, and this is, this is what it is, 
fishing for minnows standing on the back of a whale. So the fishing for minnows part is what most of us spend most of our lives doing. It's like getting dinner on the table, doing doing shit for work, and picking up the dry cleaning, taking the kids to their dentist appointments, whatever it is. That's the minnows, and that's where we spend most of our life. And that, uh, you know, that's important for survival. We need to do those things. We need to take care of our work and our families and our jobs and just the 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 tasks that we need to accomplish. What we don't usually notice is that we're standing on the back of a whale. And I feel like if we take a second every day to be conscious of the ground we're standing on and how it supports us and it shifts underneath us and it's this living, breathing mystery, you know, which I think is kind of undervalued in this world of Google where everything is... All the knowledge is at the tip of our fingers. We can just Google anything we want to know. But that that there is a mystery to this world and this universe we're in. We don't know. There is an unknown that we can never reconcile with while we're in our human bodies. And, you know, while we're on this earth, there's there's always going to be a million things to do and tasks to accomplish. But I feel like taking that minute every day to be conscious is critical, for me at least, in being aware that we're all just parts of a much larger whole. And maybe that awareness that we're all parts of a larger whole, like we're on this spinning blue marble that is minuscule in the cosmic scale of things that are happening. Maybe that awareness will allow us to overcome and transcend all of those, all of our kind of individual egoic structures, you know, that I, that I was kind of talking about earlier. And it will allow us to if live with the infinite and if not have a relationship with the infinite and the unknown and the mystery and kind of just get over ourselves which I think there's a that's a big source of conflict in this extremely rational world where we think everything is explained and so our only you know object of worship is ourselves we need to worship ourselves and satiate ourselves and consume and eat uh tasty treats and chocolates and watch our shows and you know, pedicure our toes and do everything we can at the altar of our own ego. If we can kind of get over that, I think that could be helpful. And maybe, I mean, this is a very, very extreme tangent that I'm taking. It has nothing to do with the <laughs> nevers. But I just, you know, like, if I, if I had something to say about this, that's what I would say. And I'm not... I'm I just want to stress that I'm not I'm I'm with everybody in the sense that I'm also very much consumed by my own ego. I'm also contending with all of that stuff and trying to figure it out and exploring myself and my relationship with my existence on this planet Earth as I continue to do all of my, you know, 
tasks. Like I, I have a job, I have a family, I have friends, I have commitments and relationships and roles that I need to play. And it's it's a balance that we all have to strike. But I think we need to take that moment to really kind of go beyond our egos. And that could be helpful. Anyways, that's all I have to say on, on those emails. And <laughs> Yeah, I think with Thomas Kelly, like, I understand bad stuff happens and we all need to be equipped to deal with it and understand it's a part of life. But like in terms of the whole everyone walking around on eggshells so we don't upset anyone I mean me personally I don't ever feel like I'm walking on eggshells I am accepting of and accepting of how people are different and if they're not bad people and they're not doing anything horrible they're just existing like I don't feel like I'm walking on eggshells I'm also just existing and you know I'm not walking on eggshells but I won't ever offend them and I think that's the thing I've spoken to like older people in my genera- in my family and they have to make a real conscious choice to not offend everyone. Whereas for me, I feel like I'm never making a conscious choice. I just don't ever offend anyone. Exactly, yeah. I, I mean, you want to be considerate and aware of other people's emotions, but I do think that Thomas is right in the sense that you're not responsible for other people's reactions to what you're doing, but you should also, you know, in... Uh, relation to that you should absolutely take in how other people are responding to you and adjust accordingly so if other people Mm. are just freaking out whenever you say the word uh, uh, banana then sure don't say the word banana anymore say something else say like (laughs) a, a yellow fruit with a like a like in a curve shape say something differently to communicate your ideas you should adjust you should kind of because like I don't, it's everyone's yeah. responsibility isn't it to create a world where exactly we're all responsible for yeah. each other even some of us don't like to take responsibility for everything but ultimately as a person i am responsible for everyone and everything in the universe and if i function <laughs> in that way then if my behavior is causing another person to feel pain or anger, then I am responsible to that and I will adjust. And, you know, yeah. it doesn't mean we're on two different sides. We can be on the same team. Yeah. And, you know, and that ultimately will lead to conversation and dialogue that we both can profit and uh, progress from. And that's that I feel like is the best way to go. Yeah, I love talking to people about, like, people that don't necessarily see things the way that I do or whatever. I love sitting down and just talking about it and getting it all out there. Like, without being, um, like you say, aggressive or angry about it, you know, just talking about it. Right, yeah. Love people, but fight, fight ideas and things that are not uh, conducive to everybody, I guess, is my approach like i can if i'm talking to a person who is diametrically opposed to me then my approach would be to consider them as on the same team as me however their idea is something that i cannot align myself with that would be my approach and if we can take that approach then we can all be on the same team we don't need to have different teams different sides you know, Republican, Democrat, conservative, liberal, whatever it is. We don't need to do that. 
we can all be together, but we can, you know, disagree with ideas, disagree with these kind of constructs and all these kind of things. And it's, it's gonna be a thing where we have to work towards something that's gonna take a while. It's not, it's not overnight, essentially. No. In my experience. But, um, anyway, thank you for the letters involving the controversy. Yes. And we'll, uh, get back on to some hardcore nevers related topics. Follow that. <laughs> <laughs> so the next email comes to us from Lance Abisroar. The subject line is more time travelers question mark. They say love the podcast. So informative and a much deeper analytical dive than other nevers podcasts. I've heard quick question has anyone yet discussed the fact that many of the flash-forward characters in the beginning of episode 6 seem familiar to those we've met in the present? Maybe we will see more of them again in other times or characters. Also, I love the entire Whedonverse. Never end. Thank you for your letter, Lance. Uh, yeah, I, I have heard that theory that everyone who died around the Galanthi in the future part of episode 6, traveled back in time. And Knitter is very penance adjacent. But I don't know. I don't think there's any like real, real way to tell now. What, what do you think? Hmm. Um, yeah, I think there's definite similarities. I don't know if I think that they're like the same people, but I think it's just, I don't know, almost a way to show that no matter where you are in what time in what kind of world you've always got these same kind of characters if they are the same people they're really like deep in character you know they're really daniel day lewising it like the fact that they're so victorian and in their relationships and talking about their families and stuff that is a really like impressive commitment to uh, a character or maybe they're just, you know, it's a sim and, yeah, they're just really in character. Oh, I would hate that so much. <laughs> I don't want it to be a simulation. <laughs> Thank you, uh, Lance Abisraw, who is LA Fadeaway on Instagram. Yeah. Um, so next letter is from Catherine Williams. This subject, uh, so re-watching previous episodes after episode six. Uh, apologies if this has already been said as I've just discovered your fascinating podcast the scene I found really moving was watching the scene where Myrtle and Harriet translate Mary's song Amalia's reaction when you know the backstory when she hears the words you are not alone and something about stripes and bursts into tears really got me watching it again uh, with the knowledge of episode six so thank you Catherine yeah I think even on like on a first watch watching Myrtle and Harriet work together is like really great and then seeing Amalia's reaction you're like whoa you know but then after watching episode six and knowing her backstory then you can watch it and it like definitely hits harder the clues were there all along yeah all the all the breadcrumbs were laid out and we just didn't we couldn't see the full picture yeah that that scene yeah it was a great scene. It's just another one of those instances where this show doesn't just kind of spoon feed us and give us everything on a plate. It gives us all the bits and pieces right in front of us, yet you don't really know what it all means. And then in really nice moments like this, kind of small moments, you know, it gives us all the info. Yeah, and that makes the revelation more meaningful when you really, when you finally figure out, oh, she's from the future. Oh, she's a soldier. That's what Stripe is referring to. The fact that she was 
a stripe. And when she bursts into tears in that moment, it's like she's she's it's that kind of cathartic release of I'm not alone. I'm acknowledged. I'm not deserted. I'm there's hope. And that feeling that burst from Amalia and she just starts crying in that moment. It makes it more meaningful when we don't know what that means when we're watching it. But then when we realize what that means after we've learned all the details about her, it just makes the show more uh, satisfying and more real than if it was just spoon fed to us. Oh, you know, uh, like I'm crying because I was a stripe and stripe refers to the fact that I was a soldier from the future and I'm, I've come back and I felt deserted. And, but now that this message has been translated, I don't feel deserted anymore. If she just said that straight up in that scene, like, sure, we would have known everything, but it wouldn't have been as meaningful. Yeah. Thank you, Catherine, for your letter. So the next and last email is from Nia Binorb. Uh, apologize if I didn't pronounce that correctly. The subject is chronology. So uh, they say, disclaimer, I am entirely unfamiliar with Whedon's previous work. It seems to me, based on the existence of nuclear weapons and advanced medical technology, that the future depicted in episode 6 is 2099, a hundred years after the events of the other episodes. I say after... Because I think everyone else is a sim. What's happening in 2099 is because no Galanthi came to turn of the century London. They're involved in London 2099. I may have missed it, but have you addressed Malady's yellow eye transformations and what was coming off of her when she was in the carriage with the doctor? At first, it just looks like dust as if Malady's been gathering dust, but it's obviously something coming off of her. Sporettes? I only noticed this the third time I watched it, and it's obvious that Masson has his daughter locked in a cell in his basement, and his housekeeper knows about it. Uh, WRT, I don't know what that uh, acronym means. Pheromens, you can say it. Uh, there are queer people who own the word fairy, I've enjoyed the episodes of your podcast that I've listened to. You have a lot of helpful insights, and I appreciate that, especially with a show like this that's so tightly put together. Any thoughts on that? There's a lot of questions asked there. Yeah, I was going to go to Melody's yellow eyes first. I don't know if we've talked about it in great detail. I feel like it's just once she's stored up enough energy and she goes to fight back, it's just like the energy coming out and she goes super, not super Saiyan, but super strong, you know. Hmm. But like, I feel like of, of everyone, she's kind of the one that we've seen use her turn the least, like only in those couple fights. And then, yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. Um, I mean, like her... She got her, so she got her, her powers, whatever they are, when that event happened and all those spores came down from that ship, right? However, yeah. I, I don't think, because her, so 
Okay, I'll try to articulate this cogently. But her superpower comes from pain. Yes. But that pain only came after she had already gotten her superpowers. So at that moment in time when the spore first landed on Malady, what was her power? What was her potential? And how did Mm -hmm. that power and potential get twisted into pain by her experience with Dr. Haig? I think that's the question. And if she can kind of do a rewind back to that moment and reclaim the truth of what her power is, which is not pain necessarily. Maybe that this is my theory. If she can yeah. reclaim her power from her trauma, having conquered it or imperialized it or whatever you want to call it, like her trauma kind of uh, is oppressing her power. And if she can get rid of that and, you know, I don't know. I like what you're saying. I've not thought about this, but yeah. So if her power is, was supposed to just essentially be kind of like super strength in some kind, but, you know, she's at the asylum and she's not realized this power. And then she's taken by Dr. Haig and experimented on and experimented on, goes through all this pain. And then she has a breaking point where I would assume this power's let out and she escapes or whatever. Um, and then it's only really working once she builds up enough, like takes on enough damage and takes in enough pain, she can then use it. But like, what if she could just use it at will without having to be hit and beat up? Yeah, I think initially her power probably came from love and compassion and empathy. But then... Okay, so yeah. you... Yeah, yeah. But then that got so to... So you think her power is taking, yeah, empathetic, empathetically taking in whatever emotions and turning it into strength. Exactly, yeah. But it's become really just pain because that's all she's experienced. Yeah, no, that's... Yeah, I like that. Yeah, pain became the overriding emotion that kind of associated itself in a Pavlovian way to her superpower. Mm. Like Pavlov's bell, where every time she experiences pain, she instinctually becomes powerful. But that power is in her regardless of the pain or not. Like if she if she really loves someone or is empathetic and compassionate to another person's feelings or pain or distress, she could I feel like she could also become powerful to protect instead of to become powerful to defend and sabotage and escape or whatever it is. Yeah, and I think we see a little bit of that when she jumps in, almost innately jumps in to save Harriet. Yeah. Not Harriet. Yeah, Harriet. Yeah, Yeah, Harriet, yeah. Yeah, yeah, at the um, execution. Right. Yeah, she could end up becoming the big protector. For sure. Totally. Um, this next bit about the, the scene in the carriage, I have not noticed. No, neither did I. Mm-mm. Um, and I've seen this, must have been at least like three times. Um, yeah, so I'm not sure, unfortunately. Yeah, I mean, that that question is beyond my pay grade. You gotta ask <laughs> whoever the powers that be are. I think that answers most of their questions, right? So, uh, yeah, thank you... Nia Binorb? Oh, that was our last letter. 
I feel like we went on such a tangent in the middle, but it's okay. Yeah, it's all right. It. There's no rules. <laughs> there's just, I mean, there, there is a producer who I'm sure will cut some of my stuff, but <laughs> <laughs> for the best. <laughs> I like the deep dives and learning about old stories and myths and things. But um, yeah, anyway, wrapping up this episode... You can find The Nervous Podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Amazon Music Podcasts, YouTube, and wherever else you stream your podcasts. For more Nevers-related content, you can visit us uh, on the web at hbothenevers.com, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at hbothenevers, and at The Nevers Podcast, and also at The Nevers Podcast without the A. Um, And that's on Twitter. Uh, any comments or questions you can send them to the Nevers podcast at gmail.com and we will talk about them for ages um, <laughs> and then please rate and review our podcast as well so uh, yeah thank you yeah that's all for today's episode thank you so much for listening for whoever is listening uh, <laughs> still after all of that uh, thank you Laura would you like to share your social media uh, yeah so my Instagram is laurajp one seven two one. Um, I recently put all my cosplays and stuff up. Yeah, I saw all that. That's really cool. I'm yet to cosplay anything from the Nevers. I think conventions will be coming back. I don't know if there's any coming back in London this summer, but if not, maybe in the fall next year, possibly. Yeah, I think all conventions are are virtual right now. Yeah. But um, yeah, we'll see. There's always Halloween, and I, even when I'm not doing anything, I will just dress up in crazy cosplays just to answer the door to the three children that knock for sweets. <laughs> out out <laughs> of all of the Nevers characters, who would you be most interested in cosplaying, just out of curiosity? I think for Halloween, a Malady cosplay would be great because with the like white torn up dress, it's just like kind of looks interesting and scary, mm. even if you don't know what it is. Mm. Um, I love Bonfire Annie's outfit. Yeah. So in the first episode, like, and because I was there and I, we got to see her and she's lovely. Um, then we were like, your costume is amazing. She's like, I know. And it's so comfortable. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's kind of um, kind of like kimono-esque, you know, trousers and yeah. bodice. It was, it was really nice. So that'd be interesting to get to get made or make try and make myself. By the way, I got to talk to Michelle Clapton, who's the costume designer for the Nevers. And I, I don't know when that interview is going to come out, but she mentioned in the podcast that Malady, she designed Malady's costume in, to be inside out uh, okay. because, first of all, it's kind of a jarring thing to wear something inside out. And then it's metaphorically kind of like she wears her guts uh, in front of everyone in that kind of way, in that very vulnerable, almost... Uh, unpalatable kind of way so it just it's first of all Malady's like the most distinct character in the show visually yeah to to be on Halloween and then her costume is so cool and so meaningful and so interesting so I wanted to once again throw some kudos at the Nevers costume department because they, they did a really good job but yeah if I if I do delve into the world of um because I don't do much i have got a sewing machine now um but i haven't delved really into like dressmaking or anything um complicated but you know i think that would be a definite option for me for halloween for sure awesome yeah so everybody can find me on twitter at mayan mailman 
can find me on Instagram. Uh, you can find me going on ridiculous tangents that nobody wants to listen to. Thank you so much. See you next time. I feel like you have a big book beside you that's just filled with interesting stories and you just kind of pull one out every now and then. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I like to do that. This episode of the Nevers Podcast was written, produced, and edited by Matthew at Culture Inject Studios. The intro and outro music was produced by Gilirme Morais. We are more than just a podcast. We're a fan community. You can keep up to date on The Nevers and chat with other fans by visiting hbothenevers.com. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Just search HBO The Nevers, all one word, and click that follow button. The Nevers podcast is not endorsed by Mutant Enemy, Warner Media Entertainment, or any of its subsidiaries, including Home Box Office, HBO, and is intended for entertainment and educational purposes only. The Nevers and all names, pictures, and audio clips are registered trademarks and or copyrights of their respective copyright holders. 